welcome to Mouth Off, a podcast for and about marginalized groups. Today, we continue with our exploration into the band Manic Street Preachers. With part three of our bonus mini-series, Be Pure, Be Vigilant, Behave. Today, I'm interviewing Stephen Lee Naish, an author who has had five books published and one on the way, as well as having numerous essays in various journals and periodicals. His writing explores film, politics and popular culture, and his most recent book, Modern Music Masters, looks at the body of work of Manic Street Preachers, as well as his previous book, Riffs and Meaning, which explored the album Know Your Enemy. So, as, as I said, I've read your your Manic Street Preachers, well, not the, the first one, Riffs and Meaning, talking yep. about Know Your Enemy. Sure. I've ordered that, hasn't come yet, but I have Thank just you. read Modern Music Masters, which was fantastic, mm-hmm. and I've also been looking at your, your website, looking at some of your blogs. Really interesting to hear it broken down, you know, well, we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. Um, yeah, you've sure. published yeah. six books. Uh, number six is on the way. Yeah, number six I've, is on the way. I just just handed it into the publisher this week, and uh, no doubt they'll be handing it me back for more <laughs> editing and and flourishes and things like that. But yeah, that's going to be coming out in September with a, a Canadian publisher, and uh, it's it's back to the subject of films, which is where I sort of predominantly writing so these these two books on the manics have kind of been a bit of an excursion into kind of music writing mm-hmm. which, is, which has been pretty interesting and and pretty unique opportunities as well so yeah yeah so you've said you, you're sort of your writing usually explores film um like mm-hmm. kind of crossing over into politics and popular culture yeah i'm halfway through the uh, deconstructing dirty dancing uh, book Thank i love you. that film so <laughs> well me too and like uh it it was kind of a joy to write that book actually um i kind of have really good memories of just sitting down with like a sandwich and like a cup of tea and just <laughs> like watching like you know 20 minute sort of segments and then getting my computer out and typing it was like a, a six week window of writing basically and uh yeah it felt really good really good to write that book actually yeah so really yeah, nice. it was interesting as well, sort of reading your comparisons with Blue Velvet. You know, it's not <laughs> it's not something you necessarily um kind no. of put together in your head, but yeah, the the comparisons and the points you made were fantastic. And then of course I had to go and watch the um If Dirty Dancing were directed by David Lynch, the the YouTube <laughs> trailer yeah, which was That's very interesting. That kind very of set interesting. the whole that kind of set the whole thing off really. That that little trailer there. I thought that was just remarkable yeah it's really cool do you want to just talk a little bit about yourself in a nutshell like how you how you got into your your career how you where you started what Mm -hmm. it is that makes you tick yeah sure so um so I I grew up in in Leicester in uh, East Midlands so I, I lived there from you know from being born all the way up until the age of 31 when I moved to Canada. So right now I live in uh, a city called Kingston, which is in Ontario. And uh, it, it's very British in style. Uh, it's a kind of a colonial city. So um, 
and there's a lot of British people around as well. So it doesn't feel too different, but we have extreme weather. So, you know, we have extreme cold and then extreme heat. So it's quite interesting. Um, but yeah, I moved here because my wife, uh, Jamie, she's, uh, she's Canadian. We met in Leicester. We both worked at a bookstore. And uh, here in Canada, I actually, um, I just work uh, as a library technician for the public library system. So writing is kind of like a side hustle, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, so like I got serious about sort of writing kind of like more or less when I moved to Canada, really, because for the first like six months, like I wasn't allowed to work. I had to like apply for a work visa and things like that. So I kind of had a lot of free time and would sit and would sit and 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 would write. And because I had studied uh, film uh and filmmaking and media and also politics as well. I'd studied politics with the Open University a year or two before leaving the UK. Uh, the two kind of just combined, really. And um, it was kind of really fun to write about film uh, and to sort of like seek out the political within mm. within film. So that kind of led me to that. And then, you know, had a few things published here and there just on the internet and then put together like a book uh, for a publisher called Zero Books in the UK, who's like, I've, I've been following them as a publisher for a while, just from working in the bookstore and stuff. They'd published uh, Mark Fisher's uh, Capitalist Realism and uh, some early books from uh, Laurie Penny as well. And uh, yeah, it just kind of went from there. But, you know, also I was writing, started writing this book on on Dennis Hopper as well, like a couple of years before leaving the UK and that was always kind of in the back burner and then eventually that got published as well and then uh writing about the Mannix kind of just came around about like 2014 just kind of thought it was an easy win you know just write about what you know and like what you've Mm -hmm. been kind of uh obsessed with for 20 odd years um it's kind of just like easy but what wasn't easy was finding like a, a, an entry point into the Manics because you know it's by that point to you know 2014 Futurology had not long been released so they were like well into their career right and um just finding like an entry point that that would make the book concise rather than like a massive brick of a book that would start mm. at the beginning and come through to write Futurology at that point yeah so like I just I just kind of was just taking a stab at like different writing approaches and the way that kind of riffs and meaning evolved was I wrote a chapter on on the Mannix b-sides which is in the book it it ended up being published in the book and uh I thought I can't write an entire um chapter on like all of their b-sides because that would be another book within itself right i mean that, yeah. it's huge i mean i i think they're a quality b-sides band so i would really want to dive into that so i kind of had to pick like an era or a way of sort of looking at uh, at, at their entire back catalog of, of b-sides and i thought no your enemy was a really good example because the b-sides for that record i think are, are superb and really diverse in like like their sound and stuff like that and, and lyrics as well, but also as well, the Mannix, like to, to Japan only kind of um, released uh, a, an EP uh, or a mini album of those B-sides. It's called Noah B-sides and it was released in Japan. So I thought, well, even the Mannix think that this is 
worthy of putting together and and releasing so it was just like really good and then i just thought well why not just know your enemy as a as like a as like a whole pivot point for their career because it's kind of this mashup of everything that they'd kind of previously done you know that there was this like the sort of iconoclist politics of uh, generation terrorists uh there was kind of like the the holy bible-esque like baselines and some of the mm-hmm. subject matter as well um, and it was like sprawling, like generation terrorists as well. But there was also really great anthems on there, like from th- that would have fitted okay on uh, with with a bit of production on everything must go or this is my yeah. truth. Tell me yours, you know. And then it kind of like pointed to the future as well a little bit because I mean it wasn't. I mean I, I it was a successful record, but like it wasn't as successful as their previous two and they kind of like abandoned that whole thing and then lifeblood came out and which is kind of like the, the polar opposite of uh, of um know your enemy there's no there's no color or you know verve or anything like that in that mm-hmm. record it's a beautiful record love it um so yeah it's like they they completely abandoned that whole project of being like this kind of like firebrand socialist rock band and just kind of went on and became like a really popular rock band, you know. So it was a really interesting point to sort of look at. And it, it was also the the halfway point in their discography at that point as well. So it was like really easy to kind of pivot around. So, yeah, that's kind of like how uh, Riffs of Meaning um, evolved. And then uh, the, the Modern Music Masters book, which uh, came out in March uh, this year, that was a very, very quick turnaround on that book. I, I looked at the emails yesterday, actually, from uh, the editor. His name is Tom. And uh, man, I started writing that book in, like, October. Wow. And uh, But it was it was interesting because I'd never really considered, like, oh, I'll do another Mannix book. It wasn't mm-hmm. really about that. It was just this fact that, like, you know, uh, staring down the face of this pandemic um, – and here in Canada, like we've gone through, we're in our third wave right now of like yeah. bad cases at the moment. So at this point, October, we were just on the cusp of the second wave. Mm. So we'd had a really good summer. And then like it was just getting depressing again that we would be facing like this potentially another lockdown, more restrictions. And uh, I just needed something. I needed something to distract myself from from what was happening. So like Tom, I'd been in touch with Tom throughout a couple of years and he had this series that he had started called Modern Music Masters. And by that point, I think uh, I, I'm book number four in the series. And I think Tom's Tom had just published number three at that point. And uh, I just said, hey, man, you know, like if you want me to if you want me to write a book on the Mannix, I'll do it <laughs> because <laughs> I need I need something to get me out of this this slump. So it's really lovely to go, first of all, just to be said, yeah, yeah, go ahead and do it. And uh, and then sort of uh, reacquaint myself with the Mannix again. And also write what is just a very, very like concise history of their uh, of, of their sort of time as a band. Um, that, that basically like uh, the, the, de- like the definitions were defined by the series. You know, I couldn't go over a certain word count. I couldn't delve into like, you know, a lot of like personal opinion, which uh, comes up in Riffs and Meaning quite a bit. I just had to like write a very concise history. And that was that was actually quite freeing in a way. So, yeah, it was good. You've used the word obsession with your sort of level of fandom for the Mannix. Would you say that 
are they an anomaly or do you have any other musical obsessions or what are your musical obsessions and, and are they similar in their content to the manics um so yeah, yeah i think they are like an anomaly absolutely in in what they do um there's there's only a couple of other artists i think that i i sort of attain that level of of fandom so the manics absolutely um there's a there's a guitarist uh, called Omar Rodriguez Lopez, who um, started off as the guitarist in uh, at the Drive-In, and then moved into the Mars Volta. Uh, he's an American guitarist, and um, and then has released like fifty plus like solo records and wow. collaborative records in his time. I think he released maybe three or four records last year. So like his work has always really intrigued me from hearing like the drive-in back in the early 2000s and uh his his work is very like diverse and experimental sometimes ambient uh he sings mostly in if he does sing at all he sings mostly in spanish so i don't mm -hmm. understand what you're saying but it kind yeah. of becomes part of the uh the sort of uh, of, of the music itself so yeah. and, and i think he's just a very creative guy and he's very honest about his creativity um you know him and his and mars volta at the drive-in singer cedric bixler were just huge drug addicts in like the late 90s early 2000s and when they got clean they just they were just very clear we have to we have to create otherwise mm -hmm. we're going to go back down that path again so that's how he's like handled his his uh, drug addiction basically or his, it was uh, a heroin addiction and um I, I think that's really quite noble but it also gives me as a listener an just incredible amount of stuff to to wade through and uh yeah so like he's he's somebody that i just really am interested in and and whenever he, he he doesn't interview very often but when he does he always says very like intelligent things he's also a mm -hmm. filmmaker as well he's made like seven or eight movies uh that have got no release at all they're just they're just stuff that he made and like showed to a few friends <laughs> at a few yeah. film festivals they've never been like released on dvd or streaming or anything like that so he's kind of just does this stuff uh for the for the for the sake of being a creative person, which I think is very very noble. Yeah. So yeah, that's one guy. There's uh, another another guy as well, uh, uh, singer songwriter from the '60s and '70s called Tim Buckley, uh, yeah. known as known today as Jeff Buckley's dad, um, who had this very intense short career '67 to '74, and he died in '74 of a of a, an overdose. Uh, very acute um, heroin overdose, I believe. And uh, he made like nine records, which are all just incredible records, uh, but also in incredibly diverse as well. So from his sort of like folky debuts 
But then, like, in the middle of all of that, he did, like, this incredible sort of strange uh, jazz mm. record and then moved into this kind of, like, uh, funk period, <laughs> which doesn't get a lot of love, but I find it really interesting that he would move into that. Each and every day So yeah, he's kind of like a guy that I keep keep going back to for like the past sort of 20 years. Like I first heard him, you know, in my early 20s and there's an incredible again, like there's just this incredible amount of material out there because for some some reason almost every show that he ever uh played was from like uh, a small theater to a, a tiny little cafe has been recorded for prosperity or something. So there's just loads of stuff out there. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of like three of my musical obsessions. They're all men and they're all, they all play guitars. Um, <laughs> so yeah. Is that where the similarity sort of ends? I guess, so? it, I guess <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> so when did your interest or obsession with the Manic Street Preachers begin? What was it that captured your attention initially? Uh, so I'm one of those dreaded, like, new fans of the Manic Street Preachers. So um, I came to them, like, in 1996. And I had I had heard of them, and I had possibly heard a few songs as well, because my sister had a tape copy of uh, Gold Against the Soul kicking around, and she her yeah. boyfriend was heavily into the Manics at the time as well. But I was just like, uh, I was a grunger. I didn't really... Uh, appreciate music from the UK. I was too much into the Seattle stuff. 
stuff coming out of North America. So I completely ignored them when they were like, you know, in the sort of gold against the soul and uh, um, Holy Bible era. But, you know, I brought Kerrang! magazine and Raw magazine and, the, and Metal Hammer and stuff like that. And they were they were in the periphery of those magazines. So I would often see pictures of them, you know, in their military uniforms or, mm. uh, or whatever. And then like 95, 96 came along and uh, Britpop was massive. And I kind of uh, fell into that kind of Britpop uh, thing of Oasis and Blur and stuff like that. And the Blue Tones, <laughs> Suede, you know, that those kind of bands. And then like the Manics just kind of turned up and um, in, in sort of 96 with a Design for Life. And it's just very, very suspicious of them because a lot of bands <laughs> at that point, a lot of like metal bands had kind of like ditched their aesthetics and started wearing like Ben Sherman shirts and nice trousers and stuff like that. And I didn't really know the history of like Richie Edwards. I didn't know that Richie had even like gone missing at this point or anything yeah. like that. It wasn't really in the news. It wasn't really in sort of the magazines that I was reading at the time or whatever, or the internet didn't exist. So I didn't, wasn't <laughs> put that on there. So yeah, just super suspicious of them throughout this entire like year until Australia came out. And then like, for some reason, Australia just like, Turned me on. That was it. It's a cracking. It's a cracking song. But like, I wouldn't even put it in my top twenty anymore. You know, it's not a yeah. not a song that I go back to an awful lot. But back in '96, it just sounded amazing uh, on the radio or whatever. Like, uh, yes, it just sounded so good. So I remember, like, I got "Everything Must Go" for Christmas uh, that year, and then the following year was kind of like you know I got. Uh, generation terrorists for my birthday and then went out and brought the holy bible and gold against the soul so 97 98 was really the kind of year where the obsession really kicked in and i i started sort of going around um record shops charity shops in like the midlands so leicester and nottingham <laughs> and birmingham um just hunting around for all these old singles uh yeah. cds and vinyls and stuff like that just kind of like building up the collection and trying to hear all the songs on the b-sides and so that was an incredibly exciting time to sort of walk around a charity shop and just like look in the in the boxes of records and find <laughs> generation terrorists in there you know like a first pressing it's like yeah. crazy amazing um you know with the internet now i can just type in a song that i've never heard from the manics and there it is right it's like <laughs> but here you had to go hunting around and you had to hold it on your person until you got home and could play it and stuff like that it was very cool yeah so the obsession really kind of from 97 to 2004 was kind of like peak obsession and uh you know and, and it, i just carried on listening to them I, the really the only time that i stopped listening to them was postcards hmm. um just that that record didn't click with me and it still never has and maybe I thought at that point, like, gosh, this is probably it for me in the Mannix, right? I'm probably yeah. done. Uh, but then Rewind the Film came out and Futurology. And yes, I was, I was clicked back onto them within an instant, really. Um, so, yeah. And, and the, the latest, well, the last record, I mean, it's, uh, you know, from 2018. Um, I still think it's, it's an incredible record as well. And I'm really looking forward to the new stuff. So, and James yeah. and Bradfield's solo record last year was fantastic. Really looking forward to Nicky Wire's record if it ever comes out. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, like that's kind of when the obsession, yeah, the, the sort of peak obsession was uh, 97 to 2004. And from then on, it's just been um, pretty consistent. Yeah, I think um, 
I mean, that that was the first tour I saw them in, was the Everything Must Go tour in Newport Centre in uh, 1996. I think it was 96 or 97. Might have been early 97. Yeah. No, it must have been 96. I was still in school, last year of school. Mm -hmm. And I went to Oakdale Comprehensive School, which has now been knocked down, but that is the school that the Mannics attended. But I was there about 11 years before them. So I'd heard their name quite a lot from my music teacher. You know, he loved to brag that James Dean Bradfield was in the the school choir and Sean Moore was in the school band. And that's incredible. And yeah, I was just. Yeah, I was just so fascinated that, because I mean, mm. coming from the valleys uh, at that age, just so bored, you know, and all of a sudden I was like, what? You can yeah. be in a, you can be in a rock band and be on yeah. the front cover of Smash well, It's magazine and they're in the top 30. What? You know, I just, I needed yeah. to find everything out about them then. So I, I probably, um, it was before everything must go because I would have been about 12 or 13 mm-hmm. when I first heard their name. In a, mm-hmm. uh, That was about 1992. But yeah, I really kind of, it, it took wings then and yeah, yeah. came beyond my control um, around about the Everything Must Go era. When I was old enough to start going to concerts on my own, I guess. And, you know, yeah. as much as I'd loved them at age 12, I don't think my mum would have been taking me <laughs> to see them, you know. Yeah. Smash up their equipment or whatever. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it's interesting too because, like, uh, I was studying GCSE music um, and doing okay, uh, and then then I got into the Manics and realised that I would never be able to play guitar like James Dean <laughs> Bradfield, and so pretty much gave up. And like, <laughs> my, my GCSE result is is still pretty terrible from music, but I was doing okay before <laughs> that. You know, but that was because, you know, they had these simplistic Oasis songs and stuff like that, mm. you know. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting that the time I got into them. But, yeah, I always feel like... Uh, I, I actually I, I quit school at 16 after my terrible GCSE results and worked for two years. But then because of the influence of the Mannix uh, on me, I went back to uh, school two years later and resat my GCSEs and studied media as well. So mm. I, I owe them that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, I mean, this podcast, Mouth Off, started life as a, I mean, it still is a podcast for and about marginalized groups, we've had um, sort of a wide um, range of of uh, guests on talking about topics from, you know, religion to inequality within the working classes to, you know, issues affecting black minority ethnic groups, mental health issues. I mean, lots of things. Really. I guess there's no, no topic off limit, as it were. Mm-hmm. I've always felt quite strongly that the Manics are a band, not necessarily for the marginalized, but very inclusive. And that their work touches upon issues that affect many of these marginalized communities. Is that something you would agree with? Do you think that they are a band that can embrace, you know, these issues? And do they do it, um, you know? gracefully or does it come up come across as condescending perhaps 
Um, so I've always thought, I, yeah, I totally agree with that. I always thought that they did. Now, I, I'm obviously coming from a perspective of a, a cis white middle-aged male, but so so a marginalized person might not agree with me. And I, I also don't think that they, they're a catch-all either in terms no. of marginalized peoples. But um, I think that one of the most important things about the Manics is that um, they do, they broach those topics and I think they do it very well as well. Um, I can, I mean, just as a few examples, like uh, a song like "Born a Girl" or uh, Four Stone Seven uh, Pounds" or or any of the songs that deal with uh, kind of body dysmorphia on Journal for Plague Lovers. Um, so it it kind of what it what it does for someone like me, and there are, there's a lot of us, right, who who love the Manics who you know took them uh, you know took them on board in like 96 onwards you know the sort of uh the the brit pop sort of males you know yeah uh who were you know sort of 17 or 18 and, and i come from a background which is um a work, working class aspiring to middle class uh so i grew up with virtually no marginalized people at all mm-hmm. you know, i grew up in a very white neighborhood uh a white estate yeah. And uh but what the manics do for me is um they give me some understanding about what it might be like uh to to have an issue, uh, a mental health issue or a body issue. Um or what it might be like to come from a background uh which is way more working class than I came from. Um uh, you know, so those those topics they they seep in to mm-hmm to your conscience and i think um what then that does and what the manics do beautifully is guide you towards you know something even bigger you know um so they guide you towards texts films uh philosophers uh cultural critics uh and anything like that and and that again just it continues to open up your understanding of what what it might be like and I think that that's what the Manics do really, really well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And the fact that I guess they identify with the underdog, they you know, see themselves as the underdogs of the, you know, of the music industry. I think that is all relevant to to the views and to the things they try and represent um, as a band and to their fans. Or they're freaks, as they uh, called them in their song, yeah. Underdogs. Yeah. Um, I know some fans took <laughs> offense at that, that, uh, that term and the sort of uh, <laughs> the message of that song. But I always took it as a term of endearment, you know. That, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, and I think they do, I mean, in my opinion, they do still represent those issues that they set out with maybe quite naively with Generation Terrorists, but certainly mm-hmm. I think they've stayed true to their, their first intentions. Um, I mean, what do they represent to you as a band? And, you know, are they still relevant today? Are they still sort of, are they still true to that mission, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I, I do think so. Again, um, I think sort of behind the kind of nihilistic uh, manifesto of like destroy rock and roll was always the the long term manifesto of just bringing some intelligence to uh, to music 
And again, like just pointing, pointing the listener towards uh, bigger, uh, bigger ideas and, uh, and historical events and historical people that kind of, and I, I talk about this a little bit in Riffs of Meaning, that were failures in perhaps what they did, but their failure needs to be learned, you know, from, mm-hmm. we need to learn from that failure, basically. Um, so I, I really think that that's, that, that's what they still represent to me. You know, I'm still hearing that in songs from the last record. You know, they still pointed me towards people like East Klein, who I, you know, I heard the name, but didn't really know much about the artwork or yeah. the, the life story of, of, uh, of that artist. Um, songs like, uh, you know, uh, Dylan and Caitlin, Mm-hmm. Um, which deal with uh, you know Dylan Thomas and his wife Caitlin uh, Thomas as well, uh, Vivian uh, Mayer as well. The song Vivian, um, I knew about Vivian Mayer before the song, and perhaps the song doesn't quite convey uh, the, the idea of, of her work as well as it perhaps could. But you know it's still there. And then you know um, Bowie as well. There's a song about Bowie on there. So like again, like these cultural footnotes are all still there. And they all still point the listener into other directions. So I think that's really important. Uh, really important. And so for me, they're still very relevant. But for for sort of like music uh, culture today, I think I think in Welsh music and Welsh culture, they are uh, incredibly mm-hmm. relevant. I think there's a whole crop of new Welsh artists uh, that are coming up who um, who really do acknowledge the Manic Street Preachers as a uh, as a cultural influence on them um, in the wider mainstream though. I don't think so. I mean, I, I it's been a while since I've tapped into the mainstream of, uh, yeah. <laughs> of, of music, but I don't really hear any bands that are doing what the Manics are doing. And um, the nature of music has just changed so much that it's hard to be relevant anymore. Um, I talk, uh, I, I, talk about this in the modern music masters book just very briefly you know in comparison to uh the most played manic street preachers song which is uh if you tolerate this Mm. um and in comparison to that to like an ed sheeran song or a song by drake you know (laughs) the uh the numbers in in comparison is like a few hundred million you know mm, yeah top of it, i mean i think a billion people i think over a billion people have heard one song by drake or played a song by drake that's <laughs> nuts and you know you can't you can't have that kind of popularity traditionally it has to be done that way and yeah. i think even now as well with covid19 happening you know bands can't even achieve that level uh through going out and playing live anymore no and so the Manic's relevance, I think it's still there. And unless something happens like, uh, you know, what happened last year to, to a song that I probably considered dead in the water, which was Fleetwood Mac's Dreams, which yeah. all of a sudden became a viral hit because of some guy skateboarding while drinking like Gatorade or something like that. <laughs> uh, you know, that re- like, uh, reinvigorated that song for an entire new generation of people who had never heard it. And uh, unless something like that happens to a Manic Street Preachers song, yeah. I don't think they'll ever achieve that. With, with their next record, it's literally, you know, it'll get played on radio a little bit, but, I mean, they might not be able to go out and play it live. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's so much noise on the internet now that to get a song above that, 
it's it's just really hard and even like popular artists who are getting you know potentially a billion plays combined on like spotify and youtube it's it's one song really and the next song might not do that and five years down the line they may never they their relevance will be completely gone because it's such a flash in the pan now mm-hmm. you know I, I feel i feel like songs today um I, I just made for TikTok, you know, they're made to be, mm. uh, they're made to be sort of um, consumed within a minute or two, but there's still some good stuff out there. Like, you know, I'm not saying that music has become terrible or something like that. Cause it really hasn't. Um, it's just that I feel like, you know, the attention span of, of music listeners, music consumers is so short now that I think yeah. relevant relevance is just, is, is, is irrelevant basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> so I guess as you say from here on in, okay, they might not leave their mark on the world anymore, but I think there's nothing wrong with you know, aging as a band and becoming somewhat of a legacy act. You know, if you think of someone like Paul McCartney, I've got a lot of time for Paul McCartney. I'd love to see him live. However, a friend of mine that is also a big fan of Paul McCartney has kind of criticized the live shows for being just a sort of Beatles legacy act with a couple of the Paul McCartney and Wings solo songs put in there as well. Mm-hmm. But I will still continue to buy, you know, I bought Egypt Station uh, when that was released. I've just bought, you know, well, you know, when it was released, McCartney 3. And I think as long as they still keep making new music for the fans that have been there <laughs> from the start or been there from, you know, Design for Life in those days, then, they're, like you said, the, the relevance is irrelevant, really, because there are still people that are, that are willing and wanting to buy their music. Exactly. And also as well, you know, maybe maybe the relevance doesn't exist in, in music anymore. You know, for people like myself who started writing because of the Manic Street Preachers, really, I mean, I... I didn't start writing about them, but mm-hmm. their entire ethos as a as a band uh, led me led me down this path. Yeah. And now now you're seeing like, um, you know, for, for a number of years there was only one or two books on the Manix, mm-hmm. the Simon Price book, and Martin Clark wrote a book as well. And and now in the last uh, five years, there's been. Oh man, it's been like five, mm. six books, and I've contributed two of them. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but not just books as well. There's been like, uh, there's there's the uh, the blog, um, twenty seven layers, yeah, which is incredible, very good, yeah. There's the podcast, um, do you love us, which is now what is music, and there's mm-hmm. the, the Manic Street Speakers yeah. podcast as well, um. So maybe, I mean, maybe maybe listeners of the Manic Street Peaches don't follow them into music, but maybe we follow them into different areas now in, in, uh, of the culture, which is what yeah. they've always pointed towards, you know. So now we're, you know, there's books, there's podcasts. Um, and, and as far as I'm aware as well, there's going to be more. So, you know, yeah. I, I'm not the last book on the Manic Street Preachers, and I think <laughs> that that's cool. Do you think, I mean, you kind of touched upon this with uh, the last question, but... Do you think they you talked a bit about Manifesto and them being a band that kind of came out guns and blazes, but did have, you know, a, a mission statement. They did have a manifesto. They did have something to say. 
and that may have changed over the years, but you know they've always remained somewhat political, even though maybe lifeblood was a little bit more diluted um, and not so overtly political. You know, it, it still did. You know, even songs like the Love of Richard Nixon, it did was inclusive of their, you know, of some of that early kind of spark. Do you think they've remained true to their original manifesto? It's a good question, and uh, I'm not sure if it's. Uh, I'm not sure if that's true, but also I think um, maybe they weren't as political as you probably thought when they first yeah. came out. Anyway, <laughs> I mean. Uh, oh man, yeah, it's, it's it's really hard to sort of uh, talk about, really. I mean, the last last two records, I don't think have been particularly political, or if they have, they've been a lot vague about their politics. Mm. Yeah. Um. Uh. So I, I don't know, Clary. Like, it's really hard to sort of like talk about it, really, because you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of uh, I am a huge fan of them when they are obtusely political. You know, <laughs> when when Know Your Enemy sort of came out, I was all aboard that record completely. Um, and then Lifeblood kind of disappointed me a little bit. Mm. Um, I still think that they absolutely believe in what they believe in. And I think, uh, you know, their politics is very much informed by their background. But the nature of left uh, left ideas has really changed too you know we've got this whole like dividing divide um, division of the left now into different subsections which i I suppose did exist but you know like you know we have this idea of like the dirtbag left in Mm. uh in the united states and way north america as well and um you know I, i i would have thought that uh a figure like corbyn uh would have really appealed to the Mannix because of his traditional socialist values, but they yeah. never seem to really, uh, they never seem to make a, a comment on him at all. And, uh, when they did, it was, um, a little bit negative. So yeah, it's really interesting to sort of think, cause you know, I, I would have thought someone like Bernie Sanders or, or Jeremy Corbyn would have been like right up their street in terms of traditional, uh, socialist values Mm-hmm. But uh, they, they never seem to comment on it. And I think maybe um, Know Your Enemy taught them a lesson uh, about what it means to really sort of side with something like that. Yeah, um, definitely. I feel like, you know, Know Your Enemy taught them a lesson in terms of like, maybe we just can't be this uh, obtuse anymore. Maybe in 91 we could. Yeah. Um, but now, now the internet exists, <laughs> you know, and things like that. So, yeah. Mm, sorry if that doesn't answer the question very no, well. No, no, that's fine. Um it does feel particularly more, I guess, recent politics. They, I think I've even read, you know, an interview with Nikki saying that they, they have purposely avoided talking about things like, well, obviously, the pandemic. They're not going to go away in lockdown and write about it. It just mm. feels like too much, you know, rubbing everyone's face in it. You know, we're all living it. We kind of know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, things that have happened within that and have continued to sort of, unravel like the whole Brexit stuff and, and what happened there at the start of the pandemic while that was still sort of being <laughs> trying to be sorted out. I know it feels like they are obviously we don't know what 
the next album is going to be other than the titles that they've released but it does feel like they've shied away from things that you would have expected them to write about you know Mm. in the know your enemy days or like you say you know even going back to the first album i wonder if you know (laughs) three albums time will they then kind of (laughs) start reflecting on this i don't know but yeah i guess You've just touched upon it, so let's talk about their well-intentioned failings, if you want to call it that. You know, they were always very provocative, especially in the early days, not afraid of tackling the taboo, not -hmm. afraid of pissing people off, you know, going into certain topics, guns a-blazing, saying it as it is, or saying it even not as it is, just to get a reaction, which I always, you know, I've loved that about them. I've loved that kind of funky nature about them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the results have been, I don't know, I'm guessing not what they had intended or not, you know, been too on the nose or just kind of gone about it the wrong way. Um, a song that always comes up when people are talking about, you know, these well-intentioned failings, and I've noticed it a lot on these Manic Street Preacher forums on Facebook and that sort of thing, which I'm always, Mm. I don't really contribute to, but I like having a little nose. It's like my sort of daily tabloid. But, um, you know, a song like Little Baby Nothing seems to divide fans. Mm -hmm. You know, those that are saying, yeah, great that they can get into this mindset and, you you know, they're a feminist band. And then you got the others saying things like, they're four white class cis males, you know, what, what do they know? How, you know, how patronizing males come into the rescue syndrome and all that sort of stuff. I like the song. I don't, I, I try not to get too, I don't know, deep about it. They, they were trying something and see what they were doing. I think they pulled it off quite well, but I like the song and the fact mm-hmm. that they wanted Kylie to duet on it. I'm a big Kylie fan. There we go. They won me at that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Are there any songs that spring to your mind? I'm guessing possibly off Know Your Enemy because you've brought it up already. That was a well-intentioned failing. Or maybe not a song, but just mm. something they did, a stand they took or a, a, a person or political figure they appeared to side with that in retrospect, they probably think, ah, we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, firstly, like... You you asked me to do a top ten and little baby <laughs> things in there. So. <laughs> oh gosh, um, I I love little baby nothing, but maybe we can hold <laughs> off on that for a second and we can talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So one of the things, one of the great things about writing a book on like riffs and meaning and writing it about predominantly know your enemy was that also encop- in, encapsulated a lot of their mm. failings too. Which definitely, it, it's always with good intentions. I don't think that there's any, they've made any like huge error in in any of their records or anything like that. But Know Your Enemy is really interesting because, you know, yes, it was, it was quite a political record. Um, and at the time when they went to launch it in uh, Cuba, I was like just fully behind it. I thought it was an amazing gesture. And if uh, like... In kind of retrospect, it, it doesn't feel as big, but back in 2001, mm. you know, it felt big. Like it felt like a huge thing. Uh, you know, I remember the Manics holding like a press conference with like, you know, a, uh, it was probably a small sea of journalists and things like that who were like asking them questions about the decision to go there. 
Um, so I remember, I remember that pretty clearly. And just like, I mean, obviously mm. I didn't go, right? Like I didn't go to Cuba and watch them, but, you know, watching the documentary of them being in, in Havana and um, just, you know, and the gig itself, which was actually a rudimentary gig. Like it wasn't anything yeah. too special, right? Like they couldn't go too, they couldn't go too overboard with, with where they were and stuff like that. But, you know, it just felt like a really huge moment. And that led me to, you know, reading about the Cuban revolution, Fidel Castro. Um, I got two Castro books on mm. my shelf back here. But, you know, when you sort of look at it in retrospect a little bit more, it was probably a really bad decision. And again, with good intentions, but no real follow through. So, you know, if you're going to sort of co-opt or appropriate like uh, a political ideology that that Cuba is, um, or the, the, the Cuban sort of current society is, is set on, uh, then you should probably do some follow through with yeah. that, you know, like give the record away to the Cuban people, you know, that, that's, or let, let the Western fans of the band, um, pay what they want for yeah. the record or something like that. You know, a kind, a kind of like an idea that each according to his ability and each according mm-hmm. to his needs, right? Like idea, but they didn't do that. They were, they were in Cuba to sell, uh, a record to a Western audience and mm-hmm. not to the Cuban people at all. So there was no real solidarity there between between them it was it was uh, an exercise uh, a marketing exercise so i think that that's like a, a pretty big mm-hmm. failing of theirs but i think it's one that they definitely learned from as well uh not to really do that ever again <laughs> uh you know and uh it rubbed a lot of people up the wrong way in the uk i remember a lot of backlash in the in the press not the music press but like just in general like in the actual tabloid press um, which probably was why it felt bigger than it actually was, because, you know, it was actually in, you know, the Mirror and the Sun and the Independent and the Guardian, you know, they all covered it. Um, so, but I think, you know, they never set out to do that. I don't think that that was what they were. They're, they're not that cynical. But unfortunately, you know, when you when you publish, when you're promoting a record that's on a major label, you know, clearly it's not, it's not socialism. It's not communism. It's <laughs> capitalism. It's a capitalist. It was a capitalist endeavor. I, yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm still all for it, but I, I realized that, um, that was, uh, that was an issue for them for sure. And, uh, in, in terms of other failings, I can't really think of anything that they've done recently, which is, uh, you know, which, which I would say is a failing. I sometimes listen to, um, their older records from uh, from their first record, but also before that as well. I, again, this is kind of like a it's a retrospective thing because I don't think there was an issue with it. Well, there there was probably an issue with it back then, but you know the inclusion of kind of black mm. voices in some of their songs. Uh, I mean, you couldn't mm. do that now, right? So like uh, Bobby Seal, um, who was a, a one of the founders of mm-hmm. the Black panthers appears in the intro to um spectators of suicide on the heavenly version yes yeah and uh and then uh you know you have um two samples from a public enemy record as well uh the the first song of um fear of a black planet or no sorry it takes a nation of millions um and then uh i don't know it's just it's co-opting a more justified anger 
uh, to mm. piggyback onto their their own anger a little bit. Yeah. And obviously, you can do that now. Like you, you know, that's that's been off the cards for twenty years. I mean, the last time they did it really was uh, Let Robeson Sing. And and to be fair, that's a more appropriate use because first, yeah. first of all, it's a song about Paul Robeson. About him. Yeah. The sample that they used of Paul Robeson was appropriate because it was part of the, the Welsh Transatlantic, Transatlantic mm-hmm. concert. So it was uh you know, it was a Welsh audience who was mm-hmm. uh, who was hearing that. And uh I think that was that was the uh, an appropriate usage. But just kind of using a sample to kind of uh yeah, so you know, a, a, an anger that's not their issue, and bringing it mm. into something that is their issue. But you know what? That was back in like nineteen ninety ninety one, right? So it's not something that they've done. And the new, the new version, the, the, that beautiful new version of su- uh, of Spectators of Suicide, which they recorded last year, uh, mm-hmm. you know, they dropped the sample, right? They didn't, they didn't go with it, which was a, a wise decision. Um, and it's, and that's a, a beautiful version of that song. Um, so yeah, you know, there's definitely been some failings, but I think they've owned them. Yeah, I've got to say the the whole Cuba thing. I like. Um, is it the last plane to leave Moscow where James yeah. sort of openly ridicules? You know, so you played in Cuba. Did you like it, brother? <laughs> I bet you yeah. felt proud, you silly little fucker. Yeah, I just think that. Yeah, yeah, owning it like that. You, yeah, yeah, taking the piss out of yourself, and that's exactly, exactly. <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. No, it's it's all good. They've they've always been very good at sort of like looking back at their history and realizing that, you know, they've they've said stupid things, worn stupid clothes, or uh, you know, um, made stupid songs. Right? I mean, they've just yeah. own, they just own it, and uh, yeah, it's it's fun. It is fun as well to sort of go, go on that journey with them. So yeah, uh, but also as well, you know, uh, being a white kid from you know white suburbia. Um, you know, like I didn't know who Bobby Seal was, right? So when I heard that that mm. sample, I went looking for the original content, and with the uh, with the Public Enemy sample as well. Again, I went looking for the original content. So it goes back to that education uh, thing. You know, they weren't. It wasn't inappropriate for them to do it, but it was just kind of like trying to point the listener in, into other directions. Which I think is yeah. is is, uh, is wise and noble, but just wouldn't just wouldn't be acceptable today. Yeah, and I think yeah, you're you're right in saying that it wouldn't be acceptable today. But I, I'm also glad that I I don't think they would want to do that now. Like you say, piggyback against the the issue and bring it to their own anger with someone else's issue. Um, but it kind of perfectly fitted in the early days, and I was the same as you, you know pre-internet days where you'd have to go and get an encyclopedia off the shelf and of course every household had you know a either a big thick collins mm-hmm. you know and not, not collins you know big webster's encyclopedia or these little mini ones that you'd have to help yeah. you in in school yeah so so many um you know the holy holy bible in particular so many references that you know I, I was not interested in school at all. You wouldn't have got me using my encyclopedias for school, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I was picking them up all the time to try and decipher the the Holy Bible references. And yeah, yeah, you know, it's so easy today with the internet, you know. And I think, yeah, it just it says a lot about their own 
influences and references and that they wanted to do that for, you know, their fans and younger audiences to almost be the kind of band that they listened to themselves when they were younger that got them into reading and, and all the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't good in school either. And, uh, but you know, somehow the Mannix, uh, it, it is like getting a free education in, in cultural studies mm. or something like that. It gives you critical thinking skills listening to this band. It's amazing. Yeah. So, um, if if nothing that they they have educated a, a a generation of kids basically into into being critical thinkers. So well, thank you for your time today. So to finish up, I've asked you to prepare a, a top ten, um, maybe not of your favourite tracks, but tracks that you think have tackled the kind of issues that we've been discussing uh, today, and uh, maybe these wider sort of I guess songs that might affect marginalised groups or marginalised issues. So. If you're happy to share that list, yeah, sure thing. So um, these the the first. So I'll start from like the, the number one to number ten, basically, because okay. the first three are like a lot are like locked in. They never change, basically. Motorcycle emptiness is is number one. Faster and Design for Life two and three. Yeah, Motorcycle Emptiness is just, is by all accounts, my favorite Manic Street Preacher song. It's not really, uh, I'm sure it's a lot of other people's as well, uh, you know, but there's something just genuinely beautiful about, first of all, just the recorded version, like the um, Generation Terrorist version is just so, so beautiful. Lyrics are incredible, but then its live translation is also just a really great moment as well to be in a, in a, a group of people and hearing those lines bounce along, mm-hmm. you know, it's such a wonderful song. Hate purity. Hate goodness. I don't want virtue to exist anyway. I want everyone corrupt.
Faster is uh, Faster would probably be number one if I was a heavily kind of militant person, but you know I'm a quite mm-hmm. laid back kind of person. But Faster <laughs> um, just gets you pumped, man. I like I don't know, like it just makes you want to do sit ups or something like that. You know, <laughs> it, it, it's it's a, a record that you could put on first thing in the morning, and you wouldn't need a coffee or a tea or anything like that. It would just zing <laughs> you awake. It's one of those just incredible songs. And Design for Life is, is, again, it's not really a song that I listen to an awful lot. I think it's kind of like that oversaturation. I've had more mm-hmm. than enough of it. But um, just its its, uh, its elegance um, and the, the, the sort of message that it conveys of sort of like the working class experience in such like uh, sparse couplets, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, a manic song, like a design for life from if, if it had been recorded in like 91 or 94 would have been this extensive essay yeah. that James Dean Bradfield would have had to try and cram into a reasonably good <laughs> song, you know, like a reasonably good tune. But mm-hmm. design for life just seems to like, it seems to just flow out of, yeah. of them. And I just think it's so, yeah, it's just so wonderful. And, you know, the, the first line, libraries gave us power. Libraries have always been very important to me. As a kid, I, in growing yeah. up in the village that I grew up in, there was a, a mobile library, which was open, you know, just throughout the, the week. And I would, spend, I would spend my Saturday mornings there as a kid. You know, my mom would take me. Then my mom would leave and I would stay there for mm-hmm. a good couple of hours just reading and, you know, and talking with the librarian, it really opened me up. And then when I moved to Canada, well, so I've always worked in books in, in with books, but um, mm-hmm. when I moved to Canada, I, I worked for the public library system here. And uh, you just realize like this libraries are just important to people, you mm-hmm. know, really important to, you know, we've, we've got a relatively large homeless population in, in Kingston here in Ontario, and they just rely on the library so much um and especially in canada where it like gets like you can you can deal with like minus 30 temperatures here so you need like a warming place and mm. even during like covid19 where we've been kind of shut down we still have uh, a cooling warming station within the library where people can come and just sit down and get out of the elements yeah. you know so oh, wow. i don't know like libraries just mean a lot to me and i think that 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 opening line of libraries gave us power or you know um 
knowledge is power is just really important to me. So that's kind of that. Um, the next sort of songs, they're not really, um, uh, they're kind of all over the place. So the, the, like the number four, which is Black Square, really could just be number 10. You know, it doesn't really matter. These mm-hmm. are kind of just the big yeah, yeah. splurge of manic songs. is um, of Futurology, um, just a wonderful like piece of music. Um, and uh, again, it's, like, it's that kind of thing of like investigating what it means, you know, investigating what Black Square is. And uh, so, um, yeah, that's just kind of like uh, another great manic song. I love the lyric, let us fight our own wars and make our own, our own mistakes mm-hmm. and free yourself, free yourself from the tyranny of objects. In, in a song <laughs> it's mad it's mad to include a lyric like that i love it so good and uh, that's a really good song as well where actually the the, the demo version's really good too uh it's just mm. james and a guitar but man like you can hear the the, the song structure is going to take place um yeah it's it's really cool what is the future of the future Of hate, tiny screams of love. Whoa. 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 
Hold Me Like a Heaven, which is uh, oh, from um, yeah, Resistance of Futile. Uh, like I've, I've said this before, like like how do you how uh, like album number thirteen? Do you still have a song like that in you? Like that's mm. never come out before, but there it is. Like you know, you're near, you're nearly in your fifties at this point, and that song has been inside you that whole time, and has never come out until now. Man, it just it it just like yeah, it gets me quite emotional actually because it's such a beautiful song. Um, it is James's James's like harmony, um, which could which apparently was just a guiding line. It was going to be strings. Yeah, I'm so glad that they didn't use strings and use the voice instead. <laughs> yeah, and again, like lyrically as well, like uh, tattered manifestos litter the mind. Mm. Really, to me, uh, signifies some. Um, idea of just having like a very very cluttered brain from fragments mm-hmm. of, of culture and things like that similar in, in some respects to a song like the convalescent on uh, know your enemy which is basically a song about having an aneurysm because your entire brain is just overstimulated <laughs> um so yeah i really love that song Love of Richard Nixon next um, off Lifeblood. It was the first song that came off Lifeblood, and I was just like, "Oh my god, they're going to be like this political. They're going to be trying to like, um, you know, redeem an unredeemable character." Wow, this is incredible. And then Lifeblood kind of came out, and it was obviously the outlier. Wasn't that? Yeah, yeah. it was the outlier <laughs> of that record. But man, like, it's such a great song. Uh, like, it has this beautiful, like, bouncy rhythm. I don't know if mm. I've ever danced to it in a in a club or anything like that, like in an indie club, but I think it would do, go down quite well. It uh, would, yeah. Yeah, it's cool. And again, like lyric lyrics on, in there are great. Um, you know, Richard III in the White House cowering behind mm. divided curtains and things like that. Um, and I love cool. that they've never, no, nothing before has ever sounded like that and nothing since. It's <laughs> just, you know. No, no, really not. And again, like a really great video. <laughs> them yes. hanging around playing like tennis and <laughs> uh and football while having richard nixon masks on um is just really awesome uh and again i, I kind of remember just like 
you know, being really excited by the CD releases because there was three of them, I think, and it all had Nixon face on, faces mm-hmm. on there, like each band member with the with the Nixon mask on. So you you brought them together, and uh, and then there was like badges as well that sort of said like Nixon now or Nixon more than ever. Yeah, and it's just like it's crazy to think that they tried to do this, like redeem this character in. <laughs> the era of like the war on terror post 9-11 just nuts again it's one of those things that go back to sort of just like the manics being a bit crazy sometimes and uh (laughs) yeah it's kind of like in the tradition of writing a song like revol um you know which which kind of just name checked a bunch Mm. of dictators and and (laughs) horrible like people um yeah so uh that's kind of like one that just keeps coming back. Like little baby nothing is in there too um i just i really love the song and i think i think i can definitely see the point of view of this kind of romanticization of like sex work or something like that mm. but i think what they and i think that the song wouldn't have the same longevity that it's had if, if kylie minogue had actually recorded that song with them. yeah no i agree i agree with been, you there it yeah. would have been crazy in 91 like kylie minogue was still um, under the sort of uh, influence of the Stock Aiton and, and Waterman songwriting mm-hmm. partnership. So I don't know, like, I could be wrong about this, but, you know, I didn't feel like she had much agency over herself or her mm. style of music uh, or, you know, this uh, sort of aesthetic styles or whatever uh, back in 91. It came, it did come later when she ditched those guys and recorded mm-hmm. with, like, you know, Nick Cave and, and later on with the Mannix too. Um, yeah. But yeah, by, by sort of including Tracy Lords, who at this point had like escaped the porn industry and was then kind of in, in independent films and stuff like that. I think that that's really intriguing. Mm. So I think it's the right character for that song. Um, but yeah, I can definitely see the point of view of like, yeah, the, the male savior sort of thing, mm-hmm. the shining, the, you know, the shining night or whatever. Yeah. 
Now let the freedom train come zooming down the track. Gleaming in the sunlight for white and black. Not stopping at no stations marked colored no white. Just stopping in the fields in the broad daylight. Stopping in the country in the wide open air. Where there never was a Jim Crow sign nowhere. And no living white committees, politicians of note. Nor poll tax mayors to the colored vote. And there won't be no kind of color line. The freedom train will be yours and mine. But yeah, uh, next song is Let Robeson Sing. Um, just a really great anthem off Know Your Enemy. Uh, it's a demo as well. So it just goes to show that like their demos are incredibly good quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, like beautiful lyrics. It took me down the rabbit hole of finding out who Paul Robeson was. Yeah. And I got a couple of... Paul Robeson records as well, which I listened to, and he's just a, a a beautiful individual, and a sad. It's sad as well. Like again, that's kind of the, the what the Manics do well is draw attention to people who may have failed in what they kind of mm-hmm. wanted to accomplish. And I think Paul Robeson's kind of uh, at least initially was all but forgotten until not this song, obviously, but like until you know a bit more recently, um, his kind of legacy is being rediscovered. I think. And uh, yeah, so this, this this song doesn't have much to do with that, but uh, at least it did sort of point listeners into that direction. So mm. I think it's an important song. Definitely one of the best off Know Your Enemy, and I'm really glad that it was a single as well. Yeah. Um, and again, just like it, it was weird because, you know, it came out the day after 9-11. And I think if it had been the day before it probably would have been scrapped you know yes yeah, definitely it still existed outside of you know outside of that like it was too late to basically pull it but it, it didn't <laughs> receive much radio play i remember that and it certainly it didn't i never saw the video for it until the internet yeah so oh in fact actually, i think the internet was on i think sorry i think the video was on this was one on one of the cds um but yeah i never remember it being played much or anything like that um but yeah, it's, it's kind of a song that gets like a bit of new life as well because um, because of live performances from uh, Gruff Reese of the Super Fairy Animals yeah, who yeah. contributed like a really lovely version of it too. So yeah, I think it's one of their I think it's one of their best songs.
Uh, Motown Junk comes next. Just, again, a bit like Faster, really. Kind of just makes me feel very, very alive. And it's revolution, revolution, revolution. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, sample at the beginning. Obviously, we talked about that a little bit. I kind of like the live version of it where they ditch that and they just little guitar yeah. flourishes or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I like that. But still feels good to sort of play that song and still feels good that they still play it live as well. You know, Definitely. being the age that they are, you know, it gives, I think it gives them some, some life too. I mean, Nicky Wyatt can <laughs> still launch across the stage when he's playing that song. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Just a great era. Like I, I sort of, I, when I was researching a little bit into the modern music masters book, I kind of thought um, there, there was a quote from, Nikki, which I put in the book saying that they wish they'd done a record for Heavenly. And I think they would have been really great yeah. to have had a Heavenly record. Just a, you know, a seven track short album or something like that. But yeah, I really, I'm really glad as well that they never re-recorded it or anything like that. Like it just exists as it is. Yeah. Um, you know, with, with You Lovers and Spectators of Suicide, you know, they re-recorded those songs for Generation Terrorists and they didn't with Motown Junk. And I think that that's really mm. good. I don't know what it would have sounded like as a sort of generation terrorist song. I think it's great mm. that it just exists as it is in that in that era. So that's really good. And then um yeah, no surface or feeling. kind of gives me the you know the goosebumps um beautiful lyrics again uh you can't help but sort of like attach it to richie edwards but i know that yeah. it was i know that it was written way before that and it was recorded way before that i think the recorded version on know your own uh, on um everything must go is a version that they recorded before uh, richie went missing so yeah it's kind of hard not to not to listen to it in that context though but yeah, just again, just like it just kind of soars 
takes off in that, in those in those choruses. Yeah, just a really great song, and uh, it never never been bettered. I think actually in terms of like its recorded version, I've heard it live a few times, and it just never mm. quite lands well. But the recorded version just seems seems to be right, and I think it's appropriate as well that it has a slightly rougher recording than anything else on know your enemy uh, oh man know your enemy on uh everything must go <laughs> yeah. slightly um slightly rougher production which i think is it works well for that song so i'm glad glad they didn't re-record it yeah i like that um james sings the verses in his lower register in uh mm. all surface no feeling and he doesn't do that live when it's played live he, he, well, he might start it low and then he takes it up yeah but i yeah. like the vulnerability that comes off when he's singing yeah. slightly uncomfortably low you know yeah. yeah sort of um like spectators of suicide the heavenly version which mm. it, okay his voice isn't brilliant on there but i would take that over the version that ended up on generation terrorists for yeah. instance yeah well what did you hear the have you heard the version that they re-recorded yeah. last year i love yeah. it i think it sounds great mm. Sounds really like it's beautifully produced, but um, yeah, kind of, kind of feels like that's what they were probably going for back in nineteen ninety, yeah. and it just the production just they just didn't have it right. They just uh, weren't yeah. recording in a nice sort of studio, so mm. kind of like yeah, that's the kind of version I guess that they had in their heads that whole time, and then you finally get to mm-hmm. hear it. But yeah, I like it a lot. So yeah, that's my top ten. Oh, thank you, thank you very much for sharing, and I will. Uh, I'll- Pop it in a, a Spotify playlist and uh, share that when I share this episode. And yeah, thank you very much for, for doing the interview. It was my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. Join us next time when I interview poet, lyricist, and playwright Patrick Jones. My mother stopped working when me and Nick were born, Dan Builder, and you know, very normal sort of working class life. I don't know how me and Nick <laughs> ended up stepping outside of. Obviously, it's a normal job, and that try and shout about words, really. Mary redeemed a fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino was America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.